Namo-maha-badanyaya-krishna-prema-pradayate-krishnaya-krishna-chaitanya-nam-ne-gaurat-vishen-namaha-shri-chaitanya-manobhishtam-sthapitam-yabhutale-svayam-rupa-kadam-
we're going to explore the uh, the progression, or I should say, the, the relationship between karma yoga and bhakti. So, what action, the perfection of action, today's focus is going to be bhakti. So, um, what that actually means, or what, what all these things mean, uh, we should keep in mind that we're talking about even nishkam karma. You know, for those of us engaged in bhakti as we are, I think there's a tendency sometimes to forget just how, how high of a thing even nishkam karma is. And that even as sadhikas, most of us aren't even doing that. <laughs> we'll get into that a bit. So in the Vedic system, in the Shastric system that we're a part of, we're followers of um you have to starting at the bottom you have what's called ankeja or, or basically outcasts people who don't even fit into the the four varnas or or ashrams they don't fit into the varn ashram system at all they're just basically um for one reason or another they're you know whether they're dog eaters or they're this or they're that prostitutes or whatever they don't fit into i know those, those are the only two examples i can think of but um they don't fit into the caste system anywhere in other words they're not even shooters they're not even qualified to be subservient to the other three classes in the classical system and so moving and up from there you get into broadly speaking into the four castes the four varnas of shudra vaishya kshatriya or brahmana and those four broadly speaking are all doing karma they're following the dharma shastra they come into the come into the jurisdiction of the dharma shastras which is the in the veda is the vast majority of the veda how to live successfully in the world live a progressive human life how to attain one of the various the, the artas um, the goals of life uh, whether it be economic development or it be calm sense gratification one of these things karma is designed to attain worldly benefits and that's where 99.9% of everybody in the world is focused. So for a person to be actually aware, first of all, aware of the fact that karma is a problem, no matter what form it takes, whether it's sattvic karma of a Brahman or tamasic karma of a Shudra, uh, well, let's say shooters, for example, are they're generally speaking governed by Thomas. But as we know, if one is doing one's own duty, as Krishna advocates here in the Gita, then that in itself is better than trying to do somebody else's job, even if you do it better, even if you do it well. <clears throat> Excuse me. So. doing one's own work, whatever that may be, whether it's according to one's nature, 
is Krishna's point, is sattvic in and of itself, regardless of the guna that is predominating the uh, varna that you happen to be in. So Kshatriya's, Kshatriya varna is predominated by rajas. Rajas is characterized by um, endeavor to make the world a better place. Um, Brahmanas are, are predominated by sattva, and sattva is discrimination between matter and spirit, and so therefore they're the ones who are guiding society in a way that they can be moving gradually, progressively toward spirituality, very gradually moving away from their material self-identification. Self-identification, as we'll hear in just a, just a bit in this lecture, is the pivot of the entire endeavor and the pivot of all action, really. So uh, the, the Vaishas are, even though they're predominated by some Thomas and some Rajas and Shudras, pretty much by Thomas, if they're engaged according to what their, uh, what their nature dictates, then that is sattvic. And that is, they can, they can, they can live progressive lives, cultivating higher human values in whatever station in life they happen to be in. So that's all just karma. And even that, compared to what the vast majority of people are doing today, is a very high thing. Just to live with a set of moral and social rules and codes, living according to the Shastra, um, to live a progressive life like that with, uh, with some of, somewhat of a, a broader view of what human life is about and, and that it should have a direction. Uh, direction towards something that is um, even that is a huge upgrade from standard dui pada pashu two-footed animal consciousness we find in the vast majority of people which consists of gratifying one's senses and reproduction and uh, basically trying to um, avoid as much suffering as possible and, and uh, experience as much pleasure as possible, not much more to it than that. So to go from that to Nishkam Karma, to so having studied the Dharma Shastras and one of which happens to be, or well, it's not a Dharma Shastra, but studying the Shastras in general, and then somewhere along the line, you're gonna come across a book like the Mahaparat which has a section in it, which we know as the Bhagavad Gita. And in the Gita, Krishna is talking about this, Nishkam Karma, how all the karma that we can do in the world is binding in one way or another. And so I discussed that in, in a little bit in the uh, last lecture, just the nature of material action is that it binds the soul and how does it do that? This is kind of the, the question that I've been um, exploring throughout this series is just how exactly does material action bind a non-material being? 
And the answer, of course, is through identification. Soul identifies with matter in a particular way, and that binds the soul to that, con that configuration of matter. So now identification, of course, like I said, that is the, the, uh, the, the basis or the foundation of all action. So as we identify, we act. So how does that work? Well, we know that all, all action flows from thought. So all action begins at a subtle level in the mind. And so, and, and, and what goes on in the mind is a product of what we think we are. So it goes something like this. As we identify, we act. So if we identify, for example, as a parent or as a soldier, or let's see what else, uh, what other, I, what other, um, mm, right. Or as a business person or any, you name it, whatever it is, <clears throat> excuse me, there's, However, we, we identify, we self-identify, there is a set of actions that will flow naturally, that will arise naturally out of that identification. And, and they, they will be predictable and they will be fairly consistent no matter what, uh, no matter who you're, you're who is, who you're observing or who's taken into question. In other words, all parents are gonna, they may have different parenting styles, but at the root, they're gonna be, there's gonna be common actions that follow from the identification of parenthood in general. Same thing with soldierhood and whatnot. Uh, so as we identify, we act and um, so in Nishkam Karma, the identification hasn't really come under, come under question yet. So in Nishkam Karma, the person is, we are doing our own work. We're doing what we would do normally. Uh, uh, normally, I should say, we're doing what we do as dictated by our conditioning, according to our nature, as Krishna, as I mentioned, Krishna advocates. So we're doing what doing our, our work that we would naturally do, that we gravitate toward. We don't have to think a whole lot about it. It's just what we do. And so while in Dharma, we're doing that and we're we're um, sacrificing some of the fruits of that to uh, to 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 live a, a a good material life. In Nishkam Karma, we're starting to disidentify with the fruits of all of our action. So, in the same way that that karma is a huge upgrade from just 
uh, v-karma, as the Shastra describes it, or forbidden action or um, unruly animal, animal, animalistic life, I should say. Nishkam karma is a huge, huge upgrade from karma to that, to, to from, from doing your, whatever it is your work is to, with a view to use the fruits to, to improve your life or uh, provide for children or provide, right, have a, uh, have a successful family life and all of that, religious life. Uh, being socially uh, socially influential or any of that, then even though one's basic identity doesn't change, your interest starts to shift in the in the spiritual direction in nishkaram karma, and you start to identify with the fruits of your work. So you still do what you. Nothing changes externally, and your attitude toward your work changes. And so you start to, uh, as Krishna mentions in this chapter, that, that sacrifice of Krishna, Vishnu is situated in sacrifice. And so work action is, uh, he, he says it in a negative way, all action is binding if it is not done as a sacrifice to Vishnu, as an offering to Vishnu. And so if it is, then the implication being that that kind of work no longer binds the soul, rather just the opposite. It frees the soul from the identification with matter. So that shows us how powerful it is to think of Bhagavan in any form, in any way, even the most, even the most general way as the provider, God, God, God is great. And so whatever we do, so we, in, in that scenario, in Nishkam Karma, we say we go to work, we do our job, but we're thinking this is for, this is a sacrifice to Vishnu. And um, I must, must do my work as a sacrifice to him. And that is different from Bhakti. But it's still, it's to have that consciousness is, let us say, even that is extremely rare in the world, what to speak of bhakti. So Nishkam karma is, uh, no, it's not a small thing. You know, it's like a lot of devotees may read the Gita and breeze through a chapter like the third chapter thinking oh this is not relevant to me and this is not that important and whatnot and you know uh, i'm just gonna i'm just gonna skip to the middle chapters or you know get to the real good stuff where krishna is talking about surrendering to him and whatnot and yes that's good and that is we we will attain as bhaktas we will attain the fruits of Nishkam karma through surrendering to Krishna, whereas in Nishkam karma, the fruits of knowledge uh, accrues through uh, surrendering one's desire to enjoy the fruits of one action. So that what is what is contained within Nishkam karma is also contained in bhakti. We must keep that in mind, and and. 
if we are practicing properly doing our bhakti, then this will happen to us. We will no longer care. We, we, will, we won't be working to attain things and the things that we do work to attain, we will not be attached to one way or the other. In other words, we will use things in our lives because we have to, to survive and maintain the body and the family and whatnot. But we won't be attached to the movie. Um, we will have the, one of the fruits uh, of Nishkam Karma Yoga is the equanimity of mind that Krishna recommended Arjuna attain and cultivate in the second chapter, which gives rise to this chapter. Because in the beginning of this chapter, Arjuna is remembering that Krishna in chapter two had recommended that he have this equanimity of mind and that in order to attain that, action is a problem. So Arjuna is confused. Well, if action's a problem, then why are you engaging me in this action of this war? This not just any old action, this horrible action of killing people. And anyway, so Krishna responds that it's not necessarily the kind of action you do, it's the attitude you do it with. And so that's the yogic attitude. The yogic attitude is that the type of work we do is not really important. See, in, in karma, the kind of work we do is very important because we're so identified with our body in a particular way that um, our work, what we do, will be a huge part of our identity. Whereas in, in the yoga, the yogic mindset, what we do is not that important. How we do it is important. And how we do it, and we see the yoga, the yogic mindset, the practitioner in the yogic mindset seeks to do their work with equanimity and detachment. So regardless of what we're doing, we seek to disidentify enough with the body that the inconveniences that work naturally bring will be tolerated with some grace and will be transcended to some extent uh, more so as we progress but so how does all this relate to bhakti so nishkam karma in nishkam karma we there is a uh, the fruit of that is a is gyan so action leads to knowledge action with the body brings detachment and detachment brings the ability to discriminate. And in the Gita, discrimination generally means and discrimination can be applied to all sorts of things, but what it what it generally means in the in the, the Shastras dealing with spirituality is the ability to perceive the difference between matter and spirit, body and soul. And that as we can imagine, is a huge upgrade from just doing your work. In the beginning of Nishkam Karma, you're doing your work, but you're you're seeking to cultivate this attitude that, oh, you know, this this is not, I'm not, the fruits are not mine to be enjoyed. They're they're for Vishnu. But there's no realization yet of that I what I am. 
I'm like Vishnu, I'm not like this world. And then the culmination of Nishkan karma is Gyan. Uh, I am not of this world at all. And one identifies, one's identification changes from being a parent or a soldier or a business person to an Atma. And at that stage, then, regardless of whether one is a parent or a soldier or a business person, one's identification as an Atma is the, the core identification. And those things are just something that that the Atma does to maintain the body and to um, thereby maintain the body to thereby further one's internal realization. So in bhakti then, it's very interesting because the, the path of, from karma to nishkam karma to gyan, and then to bhakti, one could say, if that is one's goal, then that's a very, very gradual step-by-step -step path, which that is what Krishna is advocating in the Gita. He's not saying, because he concludes at the very end of the Gita, just surrender to me and everything will be fine. But he's, he's, talking, he's, take, he's talking to people who are in, uh, radically different states of consciousness, most of whom are extremely identified with their bodies and whatnot. And so therefore he knows that in order to bring a person from full material identification to identification as an Atma is no small matter and it takes time. It needs to be done gradually, generally speaking. Now we who, we who are practitioners of bhakti um, have taken a bit of a different course. We have, generally speaking, we haven't followed that step-by-step -step path. We have been uh, graced by the company of sadhus, or at least one sadhu, a person who has this type of realization and has generously shared that with us, shared their his or her faith with us and then put us on the path of ultimate realization which of course as we know is the goal of being love of god and love of god in a particular form and all of that all that entails and so in from the from the classical Shastric perspective, Vedic perspective, if you will, we're taking kind of a shortcut, circumventing all of that Dharma Shastra, and then you know we we went straight from we went straight from not even inquiring into Dharma, not even inquiring into Brahman, but inquiring into Rasa, even though we're you know not qualified to do so by the grace of someone who is absorbed in that world, we're we're given some beginning some entrance into that world with the idea that as we practice, all of these quote unquote lower things, these foundational stones will be put in place gradually as we practice consistently over time. So 
as one's identification. So in, in the case of bhaktas, we're not seeking to identify merely as an atma, even though that is in just an infinite upgrade from from the idea from from the identification as uh, you know a mom or a dad or a firefighter or whatever to identify as an atma and to really do so is just that is that's the end goal of most transcendental paths and yet in bhakti that's like an incidental byproduct of surrendering to krishna so in any action right it, in order to understand action a little bit better we we might want to know the the different agents of action so one of the things that can be confusing in the gita is when krishna talks about the soul is not soul's not the doer and if you if the soul if you think you're the one performing actions and you're deluded and whatnot this can be like okay how does that work but we need to understand that further in the gita later in the gita in the 18th chapter krishna identifies five agents of action as so there's the body which is the seat of action the agent that is the soul who identifies with the body the senses efforts what things we do and as the commentators mentioned, the most important factor, Paramatma, Daiva. And this is, Paramatma is the most important factor because he's the ultimate sanctioner behind all action. As we know, not a blade of grass moves without God's will. So he, in the form of Paramatma, he, as Srila Prabhupada used to put it, God proposes and uh, man proposes and God disposes. In other words, the jiva has some will and would like to do a particular thing in relation to matter. And God's, uh, Paramatma's role is to sanction that, to, give the, to facilitate that. Okay, that's what you want. Uh, Paramatma is uh, detached. Um, and in a detached way, even though knowing that it's not going to be healthy for the soul still that's what you want all right well that's what i'll give you i'll give you the ability to you know pursue this thing that you want and you know not only that and the paramatma of course is the most important agent in action because the very elements that the body is made out of and the elements that are uh existent that the world is made out of and that the soul can reconfigure in, in in its attempts to enjoy those all come from vishnu so he's pretty important because without him there wouldn't be anything so as the as the consciousness of that reality starts to dawn in the soul then one naturally moves in the direction of well, gee, maybe I should become more uh, more thoughtful or absorbed in 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 God, because God is pretty much everything. And then in bhakti, we take that a step further. It's like, well, 
prior uh, prior to that are thinking that well gee god is important because he's the, he's the creator of everything and i have nothing without god i am nothing without god okay that that's huge that's great but still the emphasis is generally at that stage still more on oneself than on god but in bhakti we take that and we reverse that out like well, what is god about what does god want what does god want for us what how do we fit into god's plan and all of that and that's what in bhakti of course we focus on and 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 uh, a specific form of god not just paramatma which in patanjali's yoga would culminate in realization of the paramatma in at best it would be in shantaras where one is internally meditating eternally forever on, on uh, the form of vishnu forearm form of vishnu um and is fully satisfied just to be in that 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 beautiful um, space of meditation realization meditating on vishnu's feet and there's no not a whole lot of action going on there it's just the form of vishnu and shantaras passive adoration that's that's a that's a spiritually viable goal to attain it's, and it's a very 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 high thing compared to any position in the material world but then from the Gaudiya perspective of course that is like not even what Mahaprabhu came to give out of the five five rasas that Sri Rupa Goswami mentions in his Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, Mahaprabhu said he came to give four of them. Shantarasa is not even included. So Paramatma is not our goal, never has been our goal. From, from the sadhus we have come in contact with, we've come in contact with the sadhus of the, the Golok type, the, the, the Brajabhaktas. And that is a, a wholly different animal than Shantabhakti. And so our identification as, as just an Atma is one thing. But in bhakti, we identify, or we seek to identify as a sadhaka. And a sadhaka is, it's, it includes identification as an atma, of course. But it's identification as an atma, as a servant of Krishna. So there's a whole other layer, whole other level that we go to. Um, And of course, that uh, that identification <clears throat> is brought about, or gradually cultivated, I should say, through the predominant, uh, the, at least in the beginning, the, in the sadhana stage, um, through the practice of accepting what is favorable to bhakti and rejecting what is unfavorable to bhakti. And so, sharanagati is a that is the, the primary um, task of the sadhaka. And by doing that successfully, one, one 
does away with the uh, the elements in one's life, in one's consciousness that are holding one back from from moving toward uh, love of God. Uh, one does a, the the things that are getting in the way, the things that are holding us back. The in other words, the the uh, the cords of our identification with our with our material self are gradually cut, and in when one is successful in that, one's identity as a bhakta is uh, solidified in bhava bhakti. So. Now, interestingly, uh, between sadhana bhakti and bhava bhakti, our external actions won't change much. So, as I mentioned, depending on our identification, material identification in the world as a parent or whatever, uh, there is a, a certain natural set of actions that will arise out of that identification. Well, as a sadhaka, a certain set of actions will arise. And that, I'm not going to go into that in detail today. That's the focus of the next lecture. But how the mind is actually trained through action is through a repetition of a, a constellation of habits, that the establishment and the repetition of a constellation of habits. <clears throat> And that is what uh, we're going to deal a lot in uh, with habit in the next lecture. Um, in other words, the practical implications of all of this theory that I've been going over, um, how, it, how it actually works, how do we actually change our identification and the kinds of actions we engage in? How do we actually change? Huh. Not so easy. Um, so that, that presupposes, or, or in order to do that, in order to really change, we need to understand how, how we are the way we are, which, uh, as I said, we'll get into in the next lecture. But for now, we're, we're, we do well to understand that the thing that we're involved in, this Raj Bhakti, is... Um, exceedingly, exceeding rare. And what Rupa Goswami means when he says that bhakti, bhava bhakti in particular is sudrolava, very rarely attained. Now we read that in the book and we think, oh yeah, sure I am. But do we understand it in relation to Nishkam Karma Yoga, how high of a thing it is compared to that and how high Nishkam Karma is to begin with. And this is, this is just, it'll blow your mind because this thing that we're involved in, you realize it is so high and I am very, very unqualified for it. <laughs> I mean, we're engaged. Uh, it, it's kind of like, to give a material example, imagine if you're a, a, a very poor person, but you have a, a desire to go to college and some wealthy person finds out about you somehow and gives you a, a full scholarship to school, and that would be, wow, what a boon that would be. 
you know, how, how life-changing that would be. And this is orders of magnitude greater than that. Um, no comparison with this whatsoever. But we give these, give these examples to have some idea just how amazing this thing is that we're engaged in. And the actions that we take today create our future. So action is all about identity and our identity creates our actions and it informs our actions and it perpetuates certain types of actions. And so if we start to change our identity, our actions will change. And then also if we change our actions, our identity will change. So anybody who's been doing bhakti for a little while knows that just because you get initiated doesn't mean that suddenly you fully identify as a bhakta. <laughs> and that's not how it works. If that was the case, then it'd be a lot more, uh, bhakti would not be as rare as it actually is, let us say. There would be a lot more true bhaktas walking on the earth than there are. And so bhakti is extremely rare. And there are good reasons for that because bhakti has the power to control Krishna. And so he, therefore, he doesn't give it to just anybody because he wants to make sure that the person he's going to be controlled by is worthy. <laughs> and who is a person who is actually doing his will, wants nothing other than to make him happy. But that's what love is, is making the beloved happy. One's in love, one's only desire is to see to the pleasure and the happiness of one's object of love and they want nothing for oneself and so in a material relationship if you have a couple of people who are who each want to see the other person happy then that's a beautiful relationship because their highest goal is to is to uh, see to the, the, the welfare and the, and the happiness of the other. And so if the whole world was like that, then everybody would be fine because they'd be taken care of and, and uh, loved by someone else. And we could forget ourselves and just be happy because we'd be, uh, our happiness would be seen to by others and, and others' happiness would be seen to by us. Unfortunately, the world, as we know, doesn't work like that. It's usually the exact opposite. Me, me, me. How can I get? How can I get? How can I get? And the world of everyone seeking the happiness of everyone else is drudge. That's Vrindavan. And that's not what we So that's why we want to go there, because it's a worthy place to live. And that's why we're trying to get out of the place we're at. But it's a gradual process. And so even as sadhikas, we may take up the process of bhakti. We get some theory, we hear about a place like Braj. Oh yes, I'd love to live there. <laughs> yes. But we are still in the kind of consciousness where everything is about us. And it takes a long, long, long time to do away with that mentality, to, to uh, root those tendencies out and to uh, retire them and to take on a completely different identity, a person of a, as a giver, as a, as a lover, 
a lover in the true sense, not a lover of one's body, a lover of one's intellect, but a lover of one's source, Krishna. So that it takes time. It's a gradual process. And so as sadhikas, let's say, um, well, to give some context for what I'm about to say. So Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati and Srila Prabhupada did something in Gaudiya history that was never done before. They created institutions by which people could uh, live in, in, live with devotees full-time and do be engaged full-time in Guru Seva, full-time in Bhakti and all its different forms, whether that was outreach or Didi Seva or whatever. Whereas traditionally, the more common path was the person would get a guru, they, they'd meet a guru if they were fortunate, the guru would come to their village and they might hear and become inspired and ask for initiation. The guru initiates them and then the guru is generally speaking a sannyasi or some kind of renunciate and then they, they stick around for a little while and then off they go. And generally speaking, people are householders, so they're, they're a householder. They can't just pick up and leave and follow the guru. So they've got family obligations to maintain, to look after. And so the guru leaves and then they're left trying to follow the instructions that the guru has left them with. And that's the more general, more common um, situation. Most people can't live like in the 70s in, in ISKCON. And, uh, like when Guru Maharaj joined, he was married and he was living in LA, Los Angeles. And at that time in Prabhupada's movement, married couples lived in the temple and they served full time. And if you wanted to have your own place apart from the temple, you were considered to be in Maya. <laughs> so even married couples in, in that, at that time, in that mission, in that movement, were living as renunciates, essentially. Now, most people can't do that. And so then the question becomes, well, I don't have that facility. So then how do I cultivate my bhakti? I'm, I'm doing my work. What's the, what's the consciousness that, that we who don't have that type of facility should be cultivating? Should we think about going to our jobs, doing our work that uh, we would normally, that we would be naturally drawn to? Like I'm naturally drawn to carpentry and that kind of thing. That's what I do. Um, that's what I would do normally. And that's kind of all I know how to do. Uh, some people, whatever it is, they're, they're, they're doing, let's assume that most people are doing what they would normally do, whether they had come in contact with bhakti or not. So then the question is, as sadhikas, how do we, how do we think about that? How do we don't want to be, um, we want to be cultivating spiritual consciousness, even though we have to do these things that are not bhakti. And so what, what is the, what is, what is the, what is the method? How do we, what is the mentality that we cultivate? 
there's a couple of a couple of points to be made there. As Gurmaj mentions, that we should we should do whatever we have to do to maintain ourselves and our families if we have them. And um, but our disposable income, in other words, a uh, uh, portion of our income should be donated for the pleasure of Guru and Krishna somehow, whether it's sponsoring festivals or uh, helping devotees or printing books or whatever it is. In other words, bhakti is, is our fun, is our, our entertainment. And uh, we do, to, we, do uh, we do our work because we have to. And, but behind that, we're trying to identify as a bhakta, as a sadhaka. And the other point I think is uh, something along the lines of, so we're cultivating the, the identification of a sadhaka, a practitioner of bhakti, with a particular goal in mind under the direction of a sadhu or a guru. And so how do we do that? How do we cultivate that? Even so we're going to a job where we can't, you know, sit and chant Japa like Haridas Thakur. We don't have the qualification to do that, even if we had the time. So this, uh, we do our work and work purifies because you're working to, uh, you're doing what you have to do. Most oftentimes doing things you may not like doing all that much and doing them uh, at times you would prefer not to be doing them. And so this gradually tames the mind, like uh, one has to become a bit detached from one's internal, one's internal, uh, the flow of one's internal voices telling, oh, I don't really like this. And some, some detachment comes. And then, but overall, we should be cultivating the mentality that I'm a sadhaka and I'm, I'm working to maintain myself, to maintain my body so that I can practice. And I'm working so that I can mold my life, shape my life in such a way as to be able to make bhakti, make my sadhana the the axle, the pivot around which my life revolves. And if we do that, then going to work and everything becomes meaningful, more meaningful than merely maintaining our body. Because as we know, bodies come and go, right? And um, we've, had, we've had many, many of them and we'll have probably many more. Um, <clears throat> hopefully not too many for those of us cultivating this bhakti, but probably more than we would like <laughs> in any case. But that doesn't really matter, of course, once you really get the, once you get the goal locked down, you won't care how many lives it is. Even if it's a hundred or a thousand, you'd be like, fine, that's fine. But anyhow, uh, changing, our changing our identification as our identity changes, um, like I said, we, 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 like, how do we, you know, how do we go to work every day and maintain some kind of consciousness as a spiritual practitioner? And I personally, if you read the Shastras, uh, as most of you I'm sure know, 
the Shastras consistently recommend what? Chanting the name. So I'm fortunate that a lot of the work I do a lot of the time is not particularly mentally engaging or not to the point where I can't think of other things. So sometimes I'll think of a verse or I'll just chant the name kind of in a, you know, a Japa kind of style or, or mentally, or I will um, employ some, some uh, conscious breathing and have the mantra going mentally. That's, that's probably my most um, common practice because it, it, it doesn't interfere with whatever I'm doing externally. And yet I'm cultivating Krishna consciousness internally in some, even though it might be a indirect or some vague way, I guess. Um, but it's, it's cultivating that equanimity that Krishna mentions. If you have a mantra going internally, no matter what you're doing, that's a powerful practice. So, um, and then, of course, if we're doing some sort of intellectual work where our mind needs to be engaged, and we're getting paid for our intellectual work rather than our physical work, then that's different. Then, of course, we have to uh, think of it in more broad terms, like, okay, like I mentioned earlier, like we're go I'm going to work to maintain my body so that I can maintain my sadhaka deha so that I can practice. And so... That is how our actions, that's the perfection of action, is to, of course, to cultivate bhakti. And with that, I'm, that's all I had for this lecture. And we have a question here in the chat. Nam Rasana and Karnam too. I have seen in the community of devotees, some of them treat work like heavy duty having nothing to do with the sacrifice to Krishna. They are sometimes quite lazy persons. How to keep proper balance? Could you comment on it? Yes. It seems to me that this mentality arises out of a misunderstanding of what we're doing. <clears throat> excuse me we're going to act as christian mentions in this early in this chapter the soul cannot not act we're acting regardless whether we want to or not so that being the case what do we then then it's just a matter of in other words we've got to work to maintain our body and Krishna mentions that in the Gita, even the renunciates have to do something to keep their bodies. Work needs some dedication, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And so, I mean, if you have a job, let's say you're employed by someone, if you're not a business person who has your own business or independently wealthy, but even if you do, uh, that requires dedication. Um, requires some at least some day dedication at the very least it requires showing up at a consistent time you know the boss wants you there at the same time every day and you can't just say well i'm not going to show up today because i don't feel like it um they treat work like heavy duty having nothing to do with the sacrifice to krishna that's yeah i think that's a misunderstanding that there's a 
I think in the in the early stages of cultivating uh, Krishna consciousness, there can be the tendency to uh, want to separate the world from spirituality, and that can be good in the sense that it'll cause the beginning practitioner to distance oneself from things that they were previously really absorbed in. In other words, if there's a strong split in one's mind between, oh, that's, that's worldly, that's, that's not good, that's going to take me down a dark path, or that's going to keep me in the world and keep me in ignorance, and therefore I want to cultivate spiritual things, that can be good in the beginning, just to kind of get one situated on the path. Um, but as we progress, that black and white view no longer serves. So Bhaktivinoda talks a lot about Adhikar and how and he talks about progressing spiritually as kind of like walking a staircase. So as you take one step up, you're, you're at one point you have to leave the step you were at behind, but you're kind of still standing on it and you're standing on the one before the next one. And then, so there's this sort of in between, but the point being that as your Adi car increases, you're going to leave the previous step. And so what is appropriate? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, what is appropriate at one stage? Um, what, is an, uh, what is a goal or an artha at one stage becomes an anartha at another stage, even on the same path. So what is appropriate for a beginner to think is going to, in the later stages, is going to become an obstacle. It's going to become problematic. So for beginners to think that um, work is problematic and they want to, oh, that's just the realm of karma, whatever. That can be helpful, like I said, to situate them on the path and kind of solidify their identification a bit uh, in a beginning kind of way as a, as a, as a follower of Mahaprabhu, as a, as a bhakta, cultivating a spiritual consciousness. But as one progresses, these, that division will melt and one will see, like, I mean, for the Uttamadikari, they see everything as in relation to Krishna. And so now, of course, the Kanishta Adhikari, the person of, of the Komala Shraddha, the person of, of tender faith, they, they can't see things like that. And if they try to, then that'll be an artificial imposition and they won't be able to really see like that and they won't be able to maintain it. And, and then all kinds of problems can come out of that because they're trying to inhabit a, a consciousness that they, they just can't. Not that it's a bad thing to try once in a while, but it's not like, you know, you got a Kanishtika Adhikar walking around, but oh no, everything is Krishna's mercy. And that can run into problems too. So at a certain stage, it can be useful to think that um, work is, has nothing to do with Krishna. But as one becomes more knowledgeable and one, one keeps, keeps practicing, one will see that um, the work that you would have to do anyway to maintain your body, you're going to do that in the context of karma or in the context of bhakti. You've got to work one way or the other. And so just because it's not sakshat bhakti, not directly bhakti, doesn't mean that it's meaningless. I mean, is keeping your body alive and healthy meaningless? I would say not. Um, 
I would say that's pretty useful. <laughs> you can't practice, you can't chant japa, you can't do kirtan, you can't associate with devotees if you don't have a body. So now they are sometimes quite lazy persons. Yes, I, I know what you mean. And, and to some degree, I, I empathize with that. And, and uh, I mean, my personal tendency, of course, is very minimalistic. In other words, if I, I prefer not to do, I, I, I consciously minimize the, the, uh, the, the material things that I need to do so that I can focus elsewhere. I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily um, problematic. Um, You know, it, it's a uh, if if in other words, if one is if one is identifying as a bhakta as a sadhaka and one wants more time to practice, then you know maybe uh, minimizing one's external obligations, material obligations, might not be a bad idea. It depends on the situation too, though. And if, if a person's a family person, well, there's a whole a whole laundry list of obligations that come with that that you have to attend in order to do that job well you know child's got to be taken care of they got to be you know they get a little older you got to bring them to bring them here bring them there bring them to school do this do that and that's all taking time from sadhana but you know um that's for those who have chosen that path that's what they signed on for so it's kind of like you can't really complain that you don't have time to do practice if you decide to do that. You just got to understand that you're not going to be able to practice that much because you've got other obligations. Now, if a person is, uh, uh, so I'm not really sure who you're referring to. Like, are you, if you're in the community of devotees, if you're referring to people who are, uh, you know, if they're householders or renunciates or whatever, um, seems like if they're renunciates, then they wouldn't. Like what, what kind of work are you talking about? Like people living in the temple presenting that they have to work, they'd rather be chanting Japa. Well, that's just stupid. You know, like it, no, thank you. Um, if you're living in the temple, if you're fortunate to live in an ashram situation, as difficult as ashram situations can be because living with other people can drive you insane. <laughs> uh, it's also, it's just, it's, it's amazing because you are, fully engaged in bhakti 24 hours a day all you're doing in the ashram is bhakti you know and so that's why they call it service you know, whatever it may yeah it may be physically challenging maybe hard service but it's still service you're doing something you're planting a garden to grow flowers for the deity or you're uh building a building building a temple or whatever it may be. I mean, these things are extremely difficult to do physically, but they're service. So um, that's, that's not, I mean, you know, it needs to be balanced. You don't want to destroy your body in service, which unfortunately in some, in some institutions, there's sort of a, or at least I don't know about now, but there has been a culture of you know, you're not your body, so therefore you can sacrifice your body in service. And, and that's, I would say, short-sighted. 
that now you get a bunch of older people whose bodies are all broken because of what they did when they're in their 20s. That's, I don't think that's a, a good long-term strategy. But yes, okay, so looks like I ex explained it well enough for you. So if there are no other questions, then we'll just wrap it up. Okay, looks like there are no other questions. So thank you again for hearing a little bit about Srimad Bhagavad Gita. Sri Krishna Arjun ki jai, Sri Gauriya Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai, Vanchakalpaturu Vyashchakripa Sindhuge Vachapatitanam Pavanipyo Vaishnavipyo Namo Namaha. Wish you all a wonderful day and uh, hope to see you um number four next week. Thanks. Haribo. Thank you so much. Thank you, Haribo. Haribo. Thank you all for coming.